I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to our sermon text today, which is found in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 26, and I will read just four verses. So, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation, its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of this sermon might be acceptable and pleasing to you. Open our hearts and minds that we might receive your instruction. This I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Robert Wayworth was arrested in 1565 in the city of London. You might imagine what he could have been arrested for. Lots of crimes that uh, were punished then that continue to be punished today. For example, stealing from the baker or a crime of assault. All sorts of different things that cities have to address, any kind of group of people. But you might be surprised to learn why Robert was arrested. He was arrested because, and I quote, because of his monstrous pair of hose. <laughs> he was arrested for a violation of fashion. You know, in the 16th century in England, fashion was quite literally policed. Now, if you watch uh, fashion week in Paris you might want those laws to return <laughs> fashions come and go don't they I'm thankful that Robert's monstrous hose are not in fashion today not only for me but for some of you <laughs> um, we recognize that over time some things change. Fashion's a very easy example of that. Our graduates, no doubt, have received yearbooks. And one day, in the not-too-distant future, people will look at your yearbooks and cringe at some of the hairstyles. If you have any doubt, ask your parents. Right? Fashions come and go. Even sometimes do our rules for governing society, what we think is okay and what we think isn't okay. Just like for our day today, nobody thinks about policing fashion. Does that mean there's anything we can learn from the past? You know, every new generation, and in some ways I think of our graduates specifically, it can be a temptation to think that those who've gone before you don't have something to offer. Well, today we're looking at something that went before you 2,700 years. Is something so old relevant to today? When I was in college, uh, one of the classes that most impacted me was my introduction to philosophy course about logic. 
Uh, in fact, it's one of the classes I earned the lowest marks on in my entire college career. It's a reminder that sometimes those classes we most struggle with uh, can still be something that help us. Uh, I took introduction to log or logic because I wanted to get out of the math requirement. Little did I know what I was stepping into. I won't go into all what made that course difficult, but one of the things that's been helpful to me is to think through how we reason. Because sometimes the arguments we use don't really help us adequately evaluate a subject matter. I'll give you an example. An ad hominem, that's the Latin, there are all these different titles for these arguments that are really not very good. They're invalid arguments. So ad hominem is one of the invalid arguments. And what that describes is when you attack the person and not the actual argument. So for example, maybe you've been to the hospital and your doctor is making a recommendation about what you should do. If you're to say, well, I don't like the way the doctor stands. I don't like the way the doctor talks to me. Those observations don't really address the advice and the reasons why the doctor is giving that advice. And so if you base your judgment on things that are just superficial, you're not really advancing a, a kind of constructive engagement with that idea. Well, that's one example of an invalid argument. Another invalid argument is when you take something that's true in one case and then apply it to everything else. It's true that fashion changes. It's true that certain rules about how society should be governed change. But that doesn't mean that everything changes. And in God's word, we are encountering truths that do not change. Look with me in today's passage. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We pick up in the middle of Isaiah, chapter 26, and it may be that you wonder, uh, am I going to be out of place? How do I know what's going on? Normally, you don't just pick a book off the shelf and open it to the middle and start reading. Because most of the books on our shelves are narratives that have a plot line. We even have some authors with us. You wouldn't just pick up Dwight's book and start in the middle. You'd start at the end. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 songs are not that way when you think about music generally some of you probably have some albums that are greatest hits that come from all different time periods in a musician's life and Isaiah one way to think about Isaiah is it's a little that way it has selections of this message that God was giving to the people. And this particular message was to a nation and it's a promise of something that's to come. A nation that has been surrounded by enemies that in time are going to destroy the nation. And Isaiah is saying the day will come when the people of God sing this song. There are now walls that protect the people of God. Right? Walls around the city of peace, Jerusalem. This people will be in perfect peace because of their steadfast minds that are kept on the Lord. It's a song 
of a promise that came to pass. When God the Son became man and came and lived and brought the victory so that God's people could have perfect peace. But I want to ask you, do you have peace? Do you live in perfect peace? There are a lot of things that threaten our peace. Sometimes we think of enemies at the gates, like the people of Israel that were looking at those Assyrian armies that were coming upon them. And there have been times in the history of this nation where we live where there have been enemies that have attacked. For most of us, we've lived the vast majority of our lives in times of peace from those kind of enemies. And yet that doesn't mean that our life has been free of strife. You see, what we find in the Bible is that Assyria wasn't really the problem that God's people had. There is something that can rob your peace. I'm going to look at three things that rob our peace today, but this list is longer than three, but I just want to identify three things that we can see. One aspect that robs our peace, that doesn't come from outside of us, comes from inside of us, is anger. Anger can be something that robs us of peace. Do you know the way in which anger can upset your mind? Maybe you've lashed out this very week. Maybe not this very week, maybe this very day. Where something someone has done has threatened or hurt you or hurt somebody you love. And so you've responded with anger. Sometimes it's white hot anger out in the open where we lash out, we raise our voice. But that's not the only way anger can rob us of peace. Sometimes it's the slow burn of resentment. I wonder if in your own life you don't find that you have a swirling amount of resentment. Might even be at people that you, you love, people that are close to you and you don't know what to do with your resentment. You don't know how to get rid of it. You don't know how to just turn it off and it robs you of peace. Anger is one thing that can rob us of our peace, but that's not the only thing. Another thing that can rob us of our peace is pain. As I look out on this congregation, I know that some of you deal with chronic pain. You deal with pain that robs you of peace. You hurt. And maybe that hurting has at times even led you to the place of discouragement, even despair. When you think, will my life always be this way? Is there ever going to be a time when this physical setback is not taken from me? For some of you, it's not physical pain, perhaps, that robs your peace. Maybe it's emotional pain. Perhaps you wish it were physical. Perhaps you wish you could point to it and say, here is the source of pain, but it's more generalized anxiety that robs you of having any peace. You worry all the time. Maybe it's not anxiety that robs you of peace. Maybe it's grief. Maybe you've been separated from those you love. Maybe you've been separated from those you love in a way that can never be put back together and there is an unrelenting discouragement, even despair, when you think about your life forward and what, what does the future hold? Grief, pain, 
emotional hurt can rob us of peace. Those aren't the only things that can rob us of peace. Have any of you watched the movie Groundhog Day? Uh, that's now an old movie. Uh, the plot of the movie is this man, I don't exactly remember, I haven't seen it in years, but the plot of the movie is this man keeps waking up and reliving the same day over and over and over again. At first, he kind of likes it because he knows what's going to happen next. And so he kind of uses the fact that he knows what's going to happen next to his own advantage. But after a while, that gets old. Finally, he just despairs. He just hates every single day. It's boring. Perhaps your life is filled with boredom. You know, sometimes people think the reason that they're bored with church is because of the pastor. It's possible. I'll grant you. I can be boring. Not very often, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, wanna, I want you to think about this. Boredom can be diagnostically significant. Boredom can signify that you are not hungry for the things of God. Boredom can signify that you've lost the purpose that God has for you. And boredom will rob you of the peace that God has for you. What can we do about it? Is there hope? Can we be people who sing this song? I want you to hear today that there is hope. That this song is for you. That this can be your song. But when I say that, you might say, that sounds like hocus pocus. You remember that term? When I was in uh, an elementary school and middle school, there was a man in our church who was a magician. Uh, he called himself actually an illusionist. He didn't like to give the impression that he was practicing magic. Uh, that's really what magicians do. They're illusionists. They're, they, they use sleight of hand tricks to make coins disappear to make rabbits appear out of a hat. He had all sorts of tricks. And no matter how much we prodded and wanted to find out how he did it, he wouldn't tell us. It was his secret. Well, that term, hocus pocus, would often be uh, given before he did the miraculous sleight of hand. Do you know the derivation of that term, hocus pocus? It actually comes from Latin, kind of mixed up Latin. In the medieval period, when priests would officiate at the Lord's Supper table, they would say a prayer in Latin, hoc est corpus. This is the body. What was perceived to an uninstructed audience as magical, saying these certain words that would transform these elements into something that, was something that gave power. Yeah, I think sometimes people think that we as Christians are offering hocus-pocus, magic, or some people think just sleight of hand. Is there really the promise of peace? I want you to hear today that God promises peace. Do you remember the people of Israel when they were set free from Egyptian bondage? You remember what happened? They'd been in slavery for 400 years. They'd been enslaved. They'd suffered grievously. And finally, God, through these mighty demonstrations of power, set them free. 
and they left Egypt. And yet God told Moses to wait at High Papyroth, this little town. And he said, I want you to wait right here. They didn't know why. Moses apparently didn't tell them why they were waiting. But while they were waiting, Egypt gathered his armies and drove out to High Papyroth. And the people looked out and they saw the chariots and they saw the Egyptian archers and they thought and said, Moses, were there no graves in Egypt that you brought us here to die? Even after seeing the demonstration of God's power, when they were face to face with that which threatened them, their faith faltered. And I want you to know, you can be a child of God and your faith can falter. And as your faith falters, it robs you of peace. Do you remember what Moses was told to do? Stretch out his hands. He stretched out his hands. And by God's power, the sea parted. The people passed through safely. And when the Egyptian army pursued them, the waters destroyed them. Was that the last time the people of God complained? No. No. In the very next chapter. The very next chapter. Now before you're too quick to judge the people of Israel, let me ask you to think in your own mind, what's the longest you've ever walked in one day? Is it 10 miles? 20 miles? Have you done 30 miles? Well, let me ask you this. Have you walked that far every day in the desert? Not on paved ground, not even on flat ground, on rough, rocky ground. Have you walked that far with children in your arms who are hungry and crying? I can imagine it wouldn't be long before the demands could bring complaining. But it's interesting, in the very next chapter, where the people's complaint reaches its highest pitch is when they finally come upon a body of water. They're thirsty. They come to water, and yet at this water, they complain. Because the water is bitter. They can't drink it. Isn't life that way? Sometimes when we think we've gotten to the finish line, only to find we're not very far. We've got a long ways ahead. Discouragement and despair can come. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to hear today, you are not to the finish line yet. We've got a long way ahead of us. Discouragement can come when you don't realize that. Do you remember what Moses was told to do when he came to the water, these bitter waters? He wasn't told to raise his arm, to pronounce a benediction over the water. Presumably he could have done that. God could act in the way God wanted to act. But do you remember what God told Moses to do? To take the bark of a tree and throw it in the water. Now why would he put wood in the water? You might think to yourself, well he put wood in the water because there were some medicinal qualities. Uh, if you thought that, you obviously didn't pay attention in chemistry class. You'd need a lot more wood. No. God chose wood to foreshadow the healing that comes through the cross. It's the beams of the cross that turn the bitter waters of disappointment into life. And I want you to hear today, your anger, your resentment can be changed to mercy and forgiveness.
that unrelenting pain that you feel like has no purpose can be changed to purpose. That sorrow that has brought despair can be transformed into hope. That boredom can be changed into a life that has meaning. When you throw the wood of the cross into those bitter waters. And here's what you'll find. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. May we keep our eyes on the cross. God grant it. Amen.